Welcome to Angry Americans. Welcome to episode 31. And happy Halloween. I'm your host, Paul Rykoff. And if you're not angry, you're not paying attention. That's the sound of angry Americans. Lots of angry Americans. That's the sound of tens of thousands of angry Americans in Washington, D.C. this week at Game 5 of the World Series. And Trump can try to fake it, but he did look a little scared in that moment. A little bit nervous. And it was a turning point. A moment that's going to be replayed decades from now when Ken Burns does a documentary on these times we're living in. These precarious times, these times where a great American experiment is in such a fragile place, in a scary place. This has been the first time Washington, D.C. has hosted a World Series since 1933, and it's been a memorable one. Politics and sports in America are intricately intertwined, always have been, always will be. From LeBron's stupid comments on China to the ruling this week that college players can finally be compensated in California for the use of their likeness, to the fact that Washington's football team still has an incredibly racist mascot, to the sports website Deadspin's controversial and I think bad decision to mandate that the writers only write about sports. Trying to take politics out of sports is like trying to take the nougat out of your Snickers bar and your Halloween candy. You just can't do it. And that outrage and chanting in Washington, D.C. was just the latest example. Maybe you were there, but that's a whole different kind of boo this Halloween. And it's understandable. And just wait until a celebration parade happens in D.C. The Nationals have done it. They've won the World Series. And there will be a celebration. Strasburg was a machine, and he should be the star. But if Trump shows up, the boos could be deafening. It looks like boo season may last for a while. It's boo season. It's spooky season. It's the time of year to be scared, to be terrified. Unfortunately, that time of year is now kind of always because Donald Trump is our president and he's doing some truly terrifying shit daily. And in this episode, we'll go behind the masks and behind the headlines in an extended and fascinating interview with the reporter that broke the Baghdadi story. This is the guy that had the news about the attack first, before Trump tweeted about it, and he held it. Newsweek reporter James Laporta is a rising star in American journalism, and he broke the story of the al-Baghdadi hit before anyone else in America. And then, the very next day, Laporta broke another story that captivated America and the world. Laporta was the first reporter to report on the identity, or at least the name, of America's new obsession, Conan. Not Conan the Barbarian, not Conan O'Brien, but Conan the Badass Special Forces Dog. This is the dog that was used by U.S. Special Operations Forces in the raid that killed Islamic State leader Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi in northern Syria. And James Laporta had it first. He continues to break national security and military stories first. That might be because he's a Marine combat vet himself. 
Laporta will take us behind the critical minutes before the story broke. He'll explain what it's like to dig for stories inside a Pentagon that doesn't want to do press conferences. And he'll tell us what it's like to report on the names of our killed in action. And what it's like to have served our country in combat in Afghanistan as a Marine and to come home and be called an enemy of the people by his commander-in-chief. That's what Trump has called the media in America. And that includes patriotic reporters like James Laporta. We'll also hear about what the Pentagon doesn't want you to know, what the real threat is at the border, and of course, what makes him angry, what makes him happy, and what was his first car. It's a good one. And I'll ask him what he's dressing up as for Halloween. Hint, it's not Rudy Giuliani. But that would be scary. Almost as scary as the headlines from this week. So before we get to James Laporta, and a way for you to take action to support some helpers who are on the front lines for America, and some special shout-outs to some of you out there getting your makeup and candy ready, there are some spooky and haunting stories that have me angry, have many others angry, and should have everyone angry. There's a lot of scary shit happening right now. California is on fire. And when you see the video, it looks like the whole damn state is on fire. And at least the World Series, an epic World Series between the Washington Nationals and Houston Astros has been an escape. The World Series went seven games. And football season is about to hit another level. And another Democratic debate is coming soon next month. But since it is scary season, there is major news about one very scary guy. Last night, the United States brought the world's number one terrorist leader to justice. Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi is dead. Not Trump. Yeah, he's scary too. But Baghdadi. Baghdadi was a scary guy. And Baghdadi is dead. That's good news. And our amazing special ops people did what they do best. Better than anyone in the world. And the only thing scarier than Baghdadi is our Delta Force badasses. They did it. They got the job done, like they always do. They came, they saw, they kicked some ass. We came, we saw, we kicked its ass. Our Delta Force kicks some ass. They always kick ass. And, as always, Trump tried to claim the credit. He couldn't just put out a press release and leave it alone. He had to do a press conference. He had to shamelessly try to take credit. Credit for a mission that his withdrawal from Syria and his abandonment of the Kurds almost jeopardized. President Mayhem is always going to be President Mayhem, even on Halloween. Just like the New York Jets are always going to be the New York Jets, you can bank on it. But what's really scary is the extent to which Trump can screw things up and potentially make them worse. We had nobody even hurt. And that's why the dog was so great. Trump shared over a dozen sensitive operational details in a Q&A about the Baghdadi raid. He talked about the planning timeline, uh, overhead intel and reconnaissance, logistical details, geographic details, talked about time on site, partner support, the route of travel of our forces, all that. I mean, the transcript of his rambling probably would have been classified if it wasn't public. And just like a horror movie, it got worse. How did you watch this? Well, I don't want to say how, but we had absolutely perfect, as though you were watching a movie. It was, uh, that, that and the technology there alone is, is really great. But combat is not a movie. It's not a reality TV show. And it's an especially irresponsible thing for a commander-in-chief to say. A guy named Kevin Brewer tweeted at me, look, I'm not a Trump fan either, 
and welcome all legitimate criticism. But this is a perfectly fine analogy to connect what it's like to watch an operation with the general public. I disagree. And that's why I responded. I said, no, saying it's like watching a movie is not a fine analogy. A better analogy would be saying it's like watching a closed circuit video of a family member undergoing brain surgery, surgery that they're unlikely to survive. It's not exactly popcorn worthy stuff. And it's not just that. Trump's statements about our troops in the Middle East and around the world are getting really scary. His proclamations don't match the catastrophic reality on the ground. I broke it down with Stephanie Rule on MSNBC this week, and here's a piece of that. Joining me now, an expert on this subject, Paul Rykoff, founder of Iraq and Afghanistan Veterans of America and host of a must-listen podcast, Angry Americans. Paul, the old rally cry used to be, no more blood for oil. We heard it over and over in the early 90s. Now the president is saying the biggest reason to keep troops there are the oil fields. Yeah, we look like mercenaries. I think there, there, there's a bigger issue here, Stephanie. There is a reality that Trump is trying to portray, okay? And then there's a reality on the ground. For the last couple of weeks, you show Richard Engel, and then you show Donald Trump's tweets. And there's a total contrast between the two. What Trump's doing now is bordering on propaganda. I mean, our troops are, are going in to places that he told us they weren't. They're going back and forth and getting jerked around. He says they're coming home, and they're not. They're actually, more of them are going to Saudi Arabia. So I think this really cuts to, to an erosion of the compact that our commander-in-chief is supposed to have with the American people. He's supposed to tell us the truth. He's supposed to tell the world the truth, especially about the livelihood of our sons and daughters. And that's all gone now. This is totally uncharted territory. So remember when Trump said he was bringing our troops home? Remember when he said he was pulling all our troops out of Syria? Yeah, maybe not so much. We've secured the oil and therefore a small number of U.S. troops will remain in the area where they have the oil. And we're going to be protecting it, and we'll be deciding what we're going to do with it in the future. So we're out of Syria, except that we're not. Because we're leaving our troops to protect oil fields. We're in, we're out, our troops are coming home, they're not. Just another day in Washington under President Mayhem. This is our Halloween nightmare. But the nightmare is real, and it's not going to end after Halloween. And get this, U.S. officials tell CNN and others that Turkey played no role in assisting the operation. Turns out that the Kurdish-led SDF actually provided intelligence to support the operation. Yet another reason that screwing our Kurdish allies is so catastrophic for our long-term interests. Their intel value is immeasurable. That's why I continue to use the hashtag, our enemies are celebrating. But despite all this, despite the horror, Patriots are answering the call. I tell you to look for the helpers. And sometimes they have four legs. Who let the dogs out? Who let the dogs out? Yep. We all now know about the dog. The dog. An incredible, awesome, brave military dog assisted in the destruction of ISIS leader Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi. The heroic dog sustained injuries when Baghdadi detonated a suicide vest. The dog was rescued and is alive. And, of course, Trump tweeted about it. He tweeted a picture of the dog and then again tweeted a picture of the dog with a fake Medal of Honor around his neck. You cannot make this shit up. But the dog was a special operations canine. 
And his service and fearless sacrifice was actually instrumental in defeating the leader of ISIS. He served our nation and countries and people around the world. Special Operations Forces, multi-purpose canines, jump out of helicopters, ride in jeeps, armored vehicles, and boats. They sniff out deadly IEDs, saving countless lives in the process. That dog is a hero. More on him or her coming up with our guest, another hero, James Laporta, soon. But this week, we were all also introduced to another American hero, Lieutenant Colonel Alexander Vindman. He's the brave soldier who testified this week for 10 hours on the impeachment inquiry into President Trump. He's a combat veteran and a Purple Heart recipient who served in the Army for over 20 years. He's a hero. He did what General Mattis wouldn't do. He rang the alarm. He went in and told the truth. He went in and told everybody everything he knew. And he's a hero. And Laura Ingram from Fox called him a traitor. Here we have a U.S. national security official who is advising Ukraine while working inside the White House, apparently against the president's interest. And there it is. You can always count on Laura Ingram to be among the first to be wrong. She's already out accusing Lieutenant Colonel Miniman of being a double agent, labeling an army officer a traitor on national TV. She's the one betraying our country, not him. I started another hashtag related to this. Thank you, Colonel Vindman. We should all thank Colonel Vindman for his patriotism, for his service, not just over the last 20 years, but over the last 24 hours. And then, of course, there was more. If you really want to be horrified, check this out. There was former congressman and real world star Sean Duffy on CNN. It seems very clear that he is incredibly concerned about Ukrainian defense. I don't know that he's concerned about American policy, but his main mission was to make sure that the Ukraine got those weapons. I understand that we all have an affinity to our homeland where we came from. This attack by Sean Duffy is disgusting, cowardly, and un-American. I don't question Colonel Vindman's loyalty to America. I question Duffy's. By his twisted logic, my grandfather, who immigrated from Germany and countless others, shouldn't have been trusted to fight the Nazis in World War II, or the Japanese, or any of our other enemies, or basically the entire history of our nation. As far as Duffy, you're done. There's no spin in what you said, man. You can't salute his service and impugn his loyalty. We all see you. America sees you. Poof. Be gone. Jim Scotto, the co-anchor of CNN Newsroom and CNN's national security chief correspondent, tweeted some stuff that I thought was worth mentioning. He said, as the character assassination of Binman begins, here are some other American public servants who were born overseas. Henry Kissinger was born in Germany, was the U.S. Secretary of State, National Security Advisor under Nixon. Brzezinski was from Poland, the U.S. National Security Advisor under Carter. Mark Meadows from France. He was a GOP congressman. Elaine Chao, she was born in Taiwan. She's the Secretary of Transportation right now. Uh, Carlos Miguel Gutierrez uh, from Cuba, the U.S. Secretary of Commerce under Bush. Ted Cruz was born in Canada. He's a GOP senator. John Negroponte, he was born in England. He was the Director of National Intelligence and a U.N. Ambassador under Bush. John Sununu was actually born in Cuba. He's the chief of staff under Bush. Arnold Schwarzenegger was, of course, born in Austria, and he was a Republican governor of California. John McCain was actually born in Panama. Many people don't know that. He went on to be a legendary GOP senator. 
and Madeleine Albright, the first female United States Secretary of State in history, immigrated to the United States in 1948 from Czechoslovakia. Not to mention Alexander Hamilton, the Marquis de Lafayette, uh, Werner von Braun, just to name a few from earlier history. But America is great not because of any politician. America is great because of patriots like Colonel Bidman. The colonel is a Ukrainian immigrant who got a purple heart after being wounded in Iraq by a roadside bomb. And his statement is full of references to duty and patriotism. The great documentary filmmaker Ken Burns and his team actually have footage of a young Vindman when they were exploring New York in the early 1980s. They were working on a feature about the Statue of Liberty as a part of Ken Burns' America series. Sitting on a bench near Brighton Beach, they found an elderly woman with two young boys who were then about 10 years old. We came from 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 Kiev. And then we went to... Our mother died, so we went to Italy. Then we came here. That's a young Vindman. That's him and his brother when they were 10 years old. And now they're continuing to serve the country that they appreciate and understand more deeply than our president ever could. Amy McGrath... Our guest from episode 17 and a Marine Corps fighter pilot noted, by the time one reaches the rank of lieutenant colonel, you take the oath five times to support and defend the Constitution against all enemies, foreign and domestic, not to defend a political party nor a president. It's an oath to defend the nation. She's right. If America were a religion, our military would be the clergy. My friend Dave Chastine is an army veteran and says it all the time. And it's never been more true than right now. So thank you, Colonel Vindman. And since we're talking about journalism and we're talking to an intrepid journalist today, I want to thank a lot of folks in the media who really stepped up this week. They stepped up to understand and explain and defend Colonel Vindman. Most notable, Brianna Keeler at CNN. She's actually a military spouse herself. Her husband is a Green Beret. And she had this to say. So let's just review what patriotism is, since some are trying to redefine it. The quality of being patriotic, devotion to and vigorous support for one's country. Not one's party, not one's president, so let's not be confused. So despite the haunting news out of the White House and all the other scary shit, there are a lot of folks who are stepping up. But there's still reason to be angry. You want more reason to be angry? I got you. Because as a group of people who should be scared right now, unfortunately. And that's whistleblowers at the VA. News broke this week that the VA office to protect whistleblowers is instead targeting them. Yep. Officials in an office in the Department of Veterans Affairs formed to protect whistleblowers repeatedly failed in that mission and sometimes retaliated against them. That's what a new report said from the department's inspector general. Now, Trump said cleaning up the VA and improving services were going to be one of the cornerstones of his administration. He talked about it on the campaign all the time. And he signed a bill establishing the Office of Accountability and Whistleblower Protection back in 2017. He said it was going to clean things up. And many critics, including myself, were hopeful, but extremely cautious. Turns out we had a right to be. The report said that the office's first executive director, Peter O'Rourke, who was a former Trump campaign staff member, who at one point served as the acting secretary of Veterans Affairs during all the drama, 
and his successor, Kurt Nicholas, engaged in, quote, misdeeds and missteps that appeared unsupportive of whistleblowers, while also failing to meet many of the other important objectives of the act, the act that established the office. Now, check this out. O'Rourke is now the executive director of the Florida Republican Party, and he declined to comment on the findings of the report and whether or not he was asked to leave the agency because of the problems identified by the inspector general. Shady, shady, shady. It's enough to make your blood boil, right? Well, maybe it'll be enough to make some people march in the streets. Veterans Day is coming up. People are going to be in the streets. But all across the rest of the world, some people who should really be scared this Halloween are the people on the wrong side of protesters. Because protests are happening all across the world. And like those wildfires in California, they're growing, shifting, and moving fast. GM workers won. GM workers approved a contract and have ended the UAW strike. We talked about it before. The longest nationwide strike against General Motors in over half a century finally ended last week. Fully. The solid majority of the company's union members delivered their support for a four-year contract that got hammered out by the leaders. The UAW emerged with a pretty substantial wage increase and succeeded in ending a two-tier wage structure that was a real irritant for a lot of folks. They also won commitments to new GM investments in the U.S. factories while accepting the permanent shutdown of three plants already idled. So, after six weeks on the picket lines, some of GM's 49,000 workers could be back on the job already, and it could take a few days to get them back up to full production. But here's what it shows. If you channel your righteous anger, you can produce positive impacts. Protests work. Organizing works. Shame works. And activism works. We saw that on another key issue this week in Washington, D.C., as the Armenian genocide was finally recognized by the U.S. government. If you don't know, the Armenian genocide was a mass systematic extinction and expulsion of roughly 1.5 million ethnic Armenians within the Ottoman Empire by the Ottoman government from about 1914 to 1923. Ever since then, the U.S. government has failed to recognize this genocide. That changed this week. After 104 years, the House voted to recognize the Armenian genocide. 405 people voted yes, 11 voted no, and 3 voted present. The vote is an affirmation of history to every Armenian American. Now, interestingly, three members voted present. Paul Gosser, Eddie Bernice Johnson, and Ilhan Omar. Huh? Ilhan Omar is on the wrong side of history on this one. She tried to spin it, but there's no spinning that she's on the wrong side of history on this one. And there's no spinning that activism works, and protests all around the world are continuing. Greta Thunberg, she's at it again. She's keeping up the fight, and thousands joined her in Vancouver at a climate strike. This is just the beginning. We will continue. Because change is coming, whether you like it or not. Vancouver police estimated that as many as 15,000 people descended on the Vancouver Art Gallery where Swedish activist Greta Thunberg led another climate strike. These protests are happening around the world every Friday. 
And if you haven't heard episode 26, where I went inside one of the climate strike protests here in New York, check it out. I was a couple feet away from Greta when she gave her speech, and it was a really good insight to what climate change activists sound like, look like, how diverse the movement is, and what it's like to be inside a protest. So go back and check out episode 26. And there are other protests happening in big numbers on a daily basis in Hong Kong. And this week, one million people took to the streets of Santiago, Chile, in what is believed to be Chile's largest ever protest. Chile's embattled president was forced to cancel two major international summits after government concessions failed to defuse weeks and weeks of violent protests. At least 20 people have died in the unrest and thousands took to the streets in anger over social and economic inequality. The Chilean president had to cancel the APEC and and climate summits amid the wave of unrest. APEC is the Asia-Pacific Economic Cooperation, which is an intergovernmental forum of 21 Pacific Rim member economies that are supposed to promote free trade throughout the Asia-Pacific region. But both of those summits were canceled in the midst of all the protests. Protests also continued in the Middle East and in Iraq, where at least 67 Iraqis were killed and hundreds were wounded in two days of protests. Protesters again clashed with security forces and militia groups in a second wave of protests against Prime Minister Adel Abul Mahdi's government this month. Americans aren't the only ones that are angry. Worldwide, people are angry, and with good reason. But back here in the U.S., some are angry for ridiculous reasons. This week, a group of Republican lawmakers walked out of a House Veterans Affairs Committee meeting. Yep. And as usual, Leo Shane at the Army Times had some excellent reporting on it. The bottom line is the House Veterans Affairs Committee is usually a pretty cordial place. They had a legislative markup this week, and the Republicans accused the majority Democrats of what they called, quote, Soviet-style tactics, and saying that the ongoing House impeachment investigations have infected the veteran policy work with politics. So this was during a debate about a women's veterans policy bill that Republicans said they generally support. But they tried to amend the legislation with a pair of unrelated proposals. One was on VA daycare credentialing issues, and one was on veterans' firearm possession rights, which were gaveled down by committee chairman Mark Takano, who's a Democrat from California. So this group left the room mid-vote, and Takano clashed with minority leader Phil Rowe of Tennessee. Now, Takano says the Republicans on the committee are trying to politicize several non-controversial bills with their own conservative priorities. He ignored Republican attempts to make parliamentary inquiries and slow the committee debate down, pushing through the vote over several shouted objectives. Look, it was a fiery hearing, and it took place just a few yards away from where the House was having secure hearings on impeachment and have been for the last month. So last week, I told you a crowd of Republican lawmakers rushed into that room to disrupt the hearings, calling the process unfair and baseless. So here's the deal. The impeachment drama is boiling over into every other committee on the Hill. And several Veterans Committee members referenced those impeachment complaints after their protest Tuesday. Now, for a long time, the House and Senate Veterans Affairs Committees were a bastion of bipartisan agreement on Capitol Hill. And walkouts like this were rare. And even controversial proposals like the expansion of VA community programs and expanding firing authority at the VA have gotten mostly bipartisan support. And the bill at the center of this is called the Deborah Sampson Act, which I worked closely on in the early days. And the IAVA team 
formulated it, and actually named it. It's been a priority on the panel's new Women's Veteran Task Force to expand gender-specific services at VA and require new protections on sexual harassment. So it's an important bill that's getting caught up in the rest of this partisan, nasty bullshit. Here's my message to everyone in Congress, and especially on the House Veterans Affairs Committee. Do your job. Stop with the fake protests. Stop with the phony outrage and just get the job done. Pass the Deborah Sampson Act. If you really care about our national security, take care of the women who are part of defending it. So there are protests here in America, too. More and more by the day by GOP leaders. And they're much less heroic than the ones in Hong Kong or in Iraq and, frankly, much less effective, much less helpful. But proof that angry Americans are many and growing and from both sides of the aisle but not always helpful. Speaking of unhelpful and scary, you know who I'd be scared of? AOC. Yep, if I was testifying and she was across from me, grilling me, I'd be scared as hell. Just like Mark Zuckerberg was scared this week when Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, the Democrat congresswoman from New York, ripped him apart like Freddy Krueger did to a teenage Johnny Depp in the original Nightmare on Elm Street. Uh, Mr. Zuckerberg, what year and month did you personally first become aware of Cambridge Analytica? Uh, I'm not I'm not sure of the exact time, but it was probably around the time when it became public. I think it was around March of 2018. I, I could be wrong, though. Mm-hmm. When did Facebook COO Sheryl Sandberg become aware of Cambridge Analytica? I, I don't know off the top of my you head. You don't know? Um, Did anyone on your leadership team know about Cambridge Analytica prior to the initial report by The Guardian on December 11, 2015? Uh, Congresswoman, I I believe so, and that some folks were were, uh, tracking it internally. And I'm actually, as you're asking this, I I do think I I was aware of Cambridge Analytica as an entity earlier. Mm -hmm. I just, I, I don't know if I was tracking how they were using Facebook specifically. So if you're Mark Zuckerberg, founder of Facebook, your Halloween nightmare is probably AOC. She's become the stuff of nightmares for many CEOs in America right now. Just ask Amazon after she blew up their plans to have a headquarters in Queens, New York. Yep, Amazon is no longer coming to Queens. Personally, I am not happy about that. But nevertheless, if you go out to Queens, you will not be seeing Amazon. And you won't be seeing Trump, even though he's from there originally. But you might see someone else, or you might see his phone, since he might have left it in the back of an Uber. Guess who I have some news about? Our old friend, Rudy Giuliani. Now I have a story that I'd like to tell about this guy you all know me as we scared as hell. He comes to me at night after I call into bed. He's burnt up like a weenie and his name is Fred. He He's like the Freddy Krueger of our politics. He won't go away. And every new sequel is worse than the last one. The original was great, and people loved it. Then, it all just went too far. Rudy went from the hero of 9-11 to whatever he is now. But, turns out, I'm not the only one who got a Rudy butt dial. I figured that might be the case. But we found out for sure this week. You know, Charles would have a hard time with a fraud case because he didn't do any due diligence. Tomorrow, I got to get you to get on Berlin. You got to call. Got to call Robert again tomorrow. It's Robert around. 
problem is we need some money. We need a few hundred thousand. So, so maybe yeah, give me options. Yeah. So happy Halloween. We have Rudy Giuliani butt dial news. It turns out that Rudy Giuliani butt dialed an NBC reporter. And when he did that, he left the phone on and he was heard discussing the need for cash and trashing the Bidens. He said, the problem is we need more money. That's what he says to an unidentified man during an accidental call to an NBC news writer. So Rudy Giuliani butt dialed me. Yep. 11 days before he butt dialed that NBC news reporter. Go back to episode 28 with Mark Roberge, and I tell the whole story, and you should listen to Mark anyway. He's great. But over the last 10 days or so, Mr. Giuliani has given very few media interviews. Calls to his phone led to a recorded message saying his mailbox was full, and the call has not been returned, at least not yet. Now, his mailbox is not full because I posted his number. I have not posted his number yet, but I'm starting to think I should, especially since Trump really seems dug in on this one. Are you at all concerned about the growing criminal investigation into Rudy Giuliani? I don't think so, because I think Rudy is a great gentleman. He's been a great crime fighter. He looks for corruption wherever he goes. Everybody understands Ukraine has big problems in that regard. Rudy Giuliani is a fine man. He was the greatest mayor in the history of New York, and he's been one of the greatest crime fighters and corruption fighters. Rudy Giuliani is a good man. Yeah. And to make things worse, although Rudy Giuliani wasn't returning calls, he was tweeting. And he was tweeting accusations at Colonel Vindman. He wrote, another shifty backfire, a U.S. government employee who has been reportedly advising two governments. No wonder he is confused and feels pressure. However, the only opinion that legally counts is President Zelensky's, who has clearly said no pressure. End of impeachment. End of shift. So Giuliani is questioning Lieutenant Colonel Vindman's loyalty to America. Giuliani, just shut up. Just stop. He's gone now. Like, he's totally gone. He's just talking a whole new level of nonsense. He's kind of become like this guy. I am Vince. Vince Clortho, key master of Gozer. Volcus Sildro, our lord of the Sabulia. Are you the gatekeeper? That's, of course, Ghostbusters, the original one, which I let my four-year-old watch this week since Halloween was coming up, not realizing it's actually a bit scarier than I remember, at least for him at his age. When you're four, lots of things out there can be scary, especially around Halloween. And yes, things are scary out there, and that's true this Halloween and most recent days. But just like any other time when things get scary, there are signs of hope, acts of heroism, and people who step up in the face of fear. People who are scared, but still fight that fear and stand up to be helpers. Like two heroes did this week in France. This week in Bayonne, in the southwestern area of France, an 84-year-old guy tried to burn down a mosque. He was a former election candidate for Marine Le Pen's far-right national party. Now, he threw an incendiary device at a mosque, a bomb basically, and then drove away. And he was trying to set fire to the whole mosque when two worshipers intervened and he shot him. The two wounded guys were 78 and 74 years old. They were taken to a hospital and they were described as in serious but stable condition. 
Many Muslims have been killed in terrorist attacks, including the 2015 Paris attack when 130 people died. Dozens were killed in an attack on two mosques in New Zealand in March. Those guys in France were an inspiration. They were the helpers, and we need more of them, no matter how scary things get, whether it's Halloween or not. And there was another voice we heard this week that was a bit of inspiration, Barack Obama. I really wish we heard more from him recently. I think we need his voice. But for now, we'll take what we can get. I tell my daughters, and I have to say, listening to Elijah's daughters speak, uh, that got me choked up. I'm sure those of you who have sons feel the same way, but there's something about daughters and their father. And I was thinking I'd want my daughters to know how much I love them, but I'd also want them to know that being a strong man includes being kind. That there's nothing weak about kindness and compassion. There's nothing weak about looking out for others. Obama's right. And he's good. And I miss that. We all miss that. But there are folks out there looking out for others. Many of you are out there looking out for others. And our guest this week is looking out for others. He's looking out for all of us. James Laporta is a patriot. He grew up poor in Florida. He joined the Marine Corps. He served with infantry and intelligence units. And his journey, like mine and so many other veterans coming home, has been an interesting one. Hasn't always been a straight line. There have been ups and downs, and he's been low. But he's a patriot, and he's a Marine, and he's smart, and he's tenacious, and he kept after it. And right now, he's at the highest point in his young career. You'll hear from a humble, respectful, insightful, candid guy who's having the single biggest week of his career, a career that's just getting started. Prior to joining Newsweek, James's bylines, work, and commentary have appeared in and on the New York Times, the Washington Post, the Daily Beast, CBS News, CNN, MSNBC, and others. I've known him for the last few years, and no reporter I know has worked harder and with more heart and with more care around the biggest, toughest, and most heartbreaking stories in America. He's covered the massive and growing veteran suicide problem. He's covered the deployment of troops to the Mexican border. He's been the first to carefully, delicately, respectfully report on the names and stories of our men and women killed in action. When everyone else turns the page, when everyone else is watching Kanye, when everyone else is watching the World Series, he's working. He's working for America. He's working for all of us. He's working for you. He represents the best of what American journalism is all about. He's what makes America great. My friend Craig Newmark, the founder of Craigslist, has now dedicated much of his life and his wealth to supporting journalism. And he says, a trustworthy press is the immune system of democracy. And he's right. And in that immune system, James Laporta is like a tenacious white blood cell, deploying time and time again to attack the viruses of disinformation, political agendas, incompetence, and lies that are attacking our democracy more and more every day. This Halloween in America, 
The attacks on our democracy are coming from all sides. They're nasty. They're hungry. They're multiplying. And at times, they're downright scary. The Trump administration, the Russians, our enemies, the corrupt, they're like the walking dead. And James Laporta is like America's Rick Grimes. And all the best reporters in America are like Rick Grimes. They're holding the line. They're throwing the axes. They're developing the cures. And they might be our only hope. But don't be scared. This interview will leave you hopeful. But it's a trip and a winding walk through a haunted house of news and politics. But we'll leave your pillowcase, your plastic pumpkin full of only the best stuff. This episode is all treats and no tricks. Halloween is all about treats. But the candy of choice across America apparently can vary from state to state. Hot tamales are the best seller in Indiana, New York, and Virginia. Go figure. Jolly Ranchers are number one in Georgia. And saltwater taffy is the favorite sweet in Nebraska, Washington, and Wyoming. Who would have guessed that? But in a poll of the entire country, the results were a bit different. And we're going to leave you satisfied with a big, massive handful of the top four. We're not handing out pennies, and you won't get any damn candy corn. It's only the good stuff here at Angry Americans. It's a Reese's peanut butter cup of integrity. It's a Snickers of information. It's some M&Ms of impact and a Hershey bar of inspiration with some Starburst, Skittles, and Tootsie Pops thrown in for good measure. Don't be afraid, people. We'll give you all the goodies, no matter what your costume is, without the stomach ache afterwards. Welcome to the Halloween episode. Welcome to Angry Americans, episode 31. Worked out great like that, huh? Ha 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 ha. Happy Halloween. Ladies and gentlemen, Angry Americans Worldwide, I am very, very pleased to bring you an important, soon to be iconic, and definitely inspiring guest that is very timely given what's going on in the world events. Yeah. The great and powerful James Laporta joins us here in New York. I, I, I don't know how much of that is true, but thank you. That's a, it's a very lovely introduction. Thank you. Welcome to the Classic Car Club. Thank you. You drove here. Yes. Which is very difficult. In a, in a Buick. In a Buick. In a Buick Regal. Wow. I love those cars. And you drove from Florida? Yeah. Where li- you live? I live in Delray Beach, Florida, among the retirees. <laughs> I love them. Although, not to get like too morbid, but like, the only the only thing that like the downside is like when when like a new house goes on sale, it's not because they moved, it's you know they they're at the end of their life. So that's the only like downside because they moved on. And yeah, and, and so I've always been like a little trepidatious to like medium meet any neighbors because it'd always be it'd be like Tuesdays with Maury turning you know over and over again. But other than that, I, I love it. Is that it's how very you get, quiet. Is that how you get the Buick Regal? Because Buick Regal, yeah, is probably yeah, I popular... wanted to blend in. I didn't oh. want to stand out. You know. 
uh, you know, it's got all like, the, you know, the features were like the backup camera and all that kind of stuff. You well, know? That, that's the exception. You've been standing out a lot in your work. We're going to get into that in a second. But I ask every guest uh, to choose a cocktail. Right. And you have chosen something that I love. And, and tell our, our audience what you've chosen and yeah, why. Yeah, it's a, it's a gin and tonic. It's, it's simple. Uh, I don't know if this is true, uh, but I had a buddy who um, is former CIA. And he told me that... Um, and again, I don't know if this is true, but but they, they get taught to drink gin and tonic. So when they're having to like elicit intelligence off people, but they have to also be seen like drinking and stuff like that, they drink gin and tonics because it's not going, they can still sort of stay in the game. And then they might, you know, pay off the bartender alert, you know, to like water it down a little bit. Wow. But, but, but from what I'm told, gin and tonic is like what newbie CIA officers were taught when going through the farm. Gin and tonic, the drink of spies. Yeah, the drink well, of spies. Yeah, cheers. cheers. Welcome, That's great right. to have you here. So, um, gin and tonic is also what my grandfather used to drink. Really? I feel like, yeah, I feel gin is an old school drink. Yes. And it is a, a fantastic drink. I love the taste of gin. When it was delivered here first, uh, it had two lemons in it, which in my view is kind of sacrilege. I had huh. never gotten, but these now have limes. We had to adjust as we right. do in the military, adapt, improvise, and overcome. Right. I wanted you to know that you don't know this, but we got limes to get it right Thank just you. for you because I, I wanted that. you to be at ease in part because you've had a heck of a couple weeks, man. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So I'm going to, you know, our intro <laughs> will, will explain to people your background. You're, you're a Marine yep. veteran that's now an investigative reporter that's right. breaking some of the most important stories in America. And so I want to start with the headline, which is you were the guy who broke the story about the killing of Baghdadi. Correct. Um, people have read it in the news. He was the most wanted terrorist alive in the world, the, the leader of ISIS and the creator of the caliphate. Yep. But um, what people may not know is how an investigative reporter gets to that point. Right. And I think it's, it's very important to start by telling folks that you had the information for a while. Yeah. And and at a time when people are arguing that the pre the president is arguing the press is an enemy of the people. Right. I think it was a demonstration in how the press is not the enemy of the people, the opposite. And you were were demonstrating pr tremendous professionalism. You kept our boys and girls safe to yep. some extent um, because you had information about this attack and you were holding it. But take us through as best you can without, yeah. you know, obviously disclosing any, um, any sources. I mean, how did you come to that story and then take us through that, 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 uh, that release of the story that told the world that American Delta force operators had killed Baghdadi? Yeah, sure. Um, I mean, to get to this point in my, in my career, uh, it, it's not, I'm not some sort of great journalist or uh, in terms of like, uh, it really is, uh, just continuing to work my beat and putting out good stories. Um, uh, when I started in journalism, I covered suicide and suicide prevention and, and, and legislation. And back when you were at IAVA, those were my first stories as I was just beginning, but it's because I stayed on that beat and continue to just do good, just basic reporting and even stories that didn't get much attention. Sources were out there paying attention and they started coming to me uh, as where I didn't have to go to them. And so uh, from just, years of good reporting. Um, basically, uh, geez, it, it's been such a crazy like week or so since, uh, since Baghdadi was killed, but I was told, um, keep your phone charged and stay available. I'm going to have breaking news for you. And that's, I was like, I had no idea what it was. And then as the operation started going down, I, I started to get more and more information. Uh, but 
as a former U.S. Marine and, and also a journalist who, to me, the, one of the most, the number one ethic in journalism is do no harm. And that's do no harm physically. And it's also do no harm in terms of like, you know, I'm not there to make uh, anyone to lose their job or lose their financing or being able to put food on the table. And so that's always at the forefront. Anytime I get a story, it's like, is this going to cause harm to someone? And, you know, guys on an operation, uh, especially as the one to go and take out Baghdadi and as top secret as that is, the last thing they need is a reporter, you know, uh, putting information out there that's going to uh, compromise what they're doing. Uh, especially, uh, especially because, I mean, when they were coming in, they took small arms fire on the way in. Um, and then we learned that people have suicide vests. And um, so it was an incredibly dangerous situation. So I sat on it. There was no need. Uh, but I do that even, even with stories that are not, I mean, they're national news, but they don't get a national attention. Like anytime, anytime a new, uh, someone gets killed in Afghanistan or killed in Iraq, I usually have the name of the person before the Department of Defense ever releases the name. And I sit on it uh, because it's not a story that, one, my biggest fear has always been uh, that a family member learns about the death of a loved one from a story that I wrote. So there's no reason to jump the gun in terms of the Defense Department just putting out that information. Um, there's just certain stories, like there's certain etiquette, you know, mm. um, so, I mean, that's, I just sat on it and, you know, I, I, it was a responsible thing to do. And every question I, I ask you will be, um, you know, grounded in if this, you know, endangers your sources or anything else, please don't answer or say right. no. But um, unpacking all of that, you, you say do no harm. That might not be every journalist's mission, right? You consider that your mission. Others, others might say, you know what, the truth has to get out no matter what. And especially in this environment where journalistic standards are kind of bouncing all over the place. Right. Um, you know, these sources are, I know, coming to you because they trust you. I was a source for you, right? Yep. I came to you with information because I trusted you. I knew you had confidential, you would uh, treat confidential or sensitive information with respect, mm -hmm. with cultural competency, with context. And I know your sources did the same, but um, how long did you sit on it? hours and in those hours you know you know that other reporters might have the same information correct and and you make that choice to and to, let me i want to deconstruct this for people who might be less familiar with journalism or military operations you don't want to disclose this information too early why for the very most basic people who may not understand to not get anyone killed i mean that it, it gets that basic if, if, uh, for whatever reason, cause I don't know exactly where they are in the operation. So let's say I put out, hypothetically, I put out a story and they haven't gotten to the target building yet where they're going to take out in Baghdadi and my story tips them off and Baghdadi escapes. And in that process, someone gets killed. I mean, it's that basic. It's, or, it, you know, maybe to stretch it out with, with great, if you said this unit was coming into this region right. with this many helicopters mm -hmm. at this time and the enemy reads it on newsweek.com before they get there. Yep. They know how to prepare for those types of people, those types of aircraft, that timing, right? That, it's that's basically right. they can they can be ready, right? You can you can give them advanced information that could literally have them laying and waiting and endanger US forces. That's absolutely right. Um I, I mean it was the same reasons. Uh the same thing, I I mean it, it it's no different when the New York Times and the Washington Post got sued by the government for the first time in history uh, with the Pentagon Papers. And, and uh, I think we saw that in, in the, um, the movie with Tom Hanks and Meryl Streep where, where the judge asks, well, would you publish the plans for D-Day? 
And, and they're like, well, no, because that's an operation and could get someone killed. The Pentagon Papers were not operational plans. They were, they were, um, you know, they were uh, a document. Uh, it was a hist- historical document in terms of like what went wrong in the Vietnam War. Right. And so the argument didn't hold up. But it's no different. It, it you know, journalists, um, despite some of the criticisms we're getting nowadays, um, I mean, there are still people who adhere to those ethics, and it's it, again, it goes back to do no harm. But it, you know, it's but it's also there's a part of journalism that is very competitive. Mm. You like you brought it up. Like, did I worry that the New York Times had it? Of course they do. They're the New York Times. Why wouldn't I think that they would have it? Right. The Washington Post. I always think of myself as like almost like a freelance journalist. Even though I work at Newsweek now, I've always considered myself as like the underdog where I, if I have this information, someone else probably has it, mm. you know? So I, I don't ever consider myself like, oh, well, of course I have this information. You're, you've, you're very scrappy, James. And I think that yeah. you, 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 people trust you because they know you have integrity. <laughs> And because they know you also understand how to handle classified information. You know, you yep. were in the Marine Corps, and I want you to talk about that later. Okay. But but just let's go deeper on this actual story. So you get this information yep. from a source. Yep. Then what do you do? Do you, can, do you know that source? Can you confirm that source? How do you know it's good? How do you know it's real? Right. So we start writing the story, uh, start getting background on Baghdadi. Uh, um, there. Uh, it was very hectic behind the scenes. Um, but my job is, is, is Tom O'Connor. I wrote the story with Tom O'Connor. He's writing all the background on, on Baghdadi and stuff like that. I'm trying to find further confirmation. Is there other sources that I can talk to that can confirm this? Um, and, uh, so that's what I start doing. And you're burning up the phones. I'm burning and now up in the this phones. world, what people may not realize is how often reporters and sources interact on social media. So it could be DMs on Twitter, could be Facebook messages, could be WhatsApp or other secu- more secure signal, right, is another one that some folks use. I mean, but, that gets into my sources and methods, sure, so I can't, sure. I can't talk sure. about that. I'm, I'm just saying but, the very but variety yes, that, that exists. that does occur in journalism. Um, and, and you even have to be even more sort of careful now uh, because there is there is sort of a crackdown on whistleblowing. And that's not, that's not mutually exclusive to, the, to this administration. That was the previous administration. So, I mean, that's nothing new. Um, but I mean, journalism would not exist without sources. Mm. I mean, we, we, you know, it would be, we'd be mockingbirds. We'd be sort of repeating just what the government says. And so, I mean, with sources are incredibly brave. They take all the risk in, in, in the information that they give us, but every source that I've come across and every source has motivations and intentions and, and journalists needs to be aware of that. But, I've been pretty lucky. It's anytime I've questioned their motivations or questioned their intentions and I've straight up asked them like, why are you bringing me this information? It's always because the American people deserve to know. And these are the same sources. When I do ask them certain information, they won't divulge it because they, it is classified and it is information that they don't feel the, the American people should know. So even the sources themselves are careful. Um, but, uh, you, you know, it, it, I've been incredibly fortunate that every source that I've come across, it's it's always been, this is something the American people will kn- should know and the government's not going to tell them. And there was a history, especially after World War II, of veterans, you know, military veterans who continued, um, you know, they viewed it as an extension of their service to work in journalism. And I've heard you talk about that yeah. before, but, you know, you um, you are trusted 
And you can also call bullshit. You know when a general yes. is doing a dog and pony show because you've been an enlisted Marine on the other end of it, right? right? So, you know, in the history of Joey Galloway, maybe, right, is maybe one of the most famous. Joey Galloway was so trusted uh, by Hal Moore and we were soldiers once and young. There have been others. Even Hackworth was kind of a, an advocate journalist, David, Colonel David Hackworth. Yep. But were there, were there uh, uh, older uh, veterans and journalists, either or, that served as kind of an inspiration or role model to you? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, yeah. Uh, jo by the way, Joey Galloway, uh, one of the only journalists I know of that has the bronze star as a journalist. Uh, I mean, just absolutely crazy. And then, yeah, Hack Hackworth actually worked for Newsweek. The guy's got like 10 silver stars, which is just yeah. unbelievable. That I, 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 When I first looked that up, I was like, that can't be real. Uh, Galloway was in was was attached to Hal Moore's unit. Firefight Correct. happens. He picks up a rifle and starts shooting because they're in such deep and, shit. And helped run some people to uh, medevac helicopters after... Um, uh, the napalm, uh, they called it napalm and it accidentally, uh, took, um, some of the, uh, of our U S soldiers out. I mean, Galloway's line about, you know, I saw them dancing in the fire. Like it's so very vivid, but, uh, and then Hackworth actually worked for Newsweek. Um, but uh, I mean, yeah, uh, when I first came in for, uh, transitioning from the Marines to journalism, um, uh, Chris Shivers over the New York times, um, uh, Marine officer, Marine infantry officer, served um he was i think he had he got deployed to the la riots actually like back in like 92 um he was a great inspiration i mean i i think he's got like two pulitzers yeah. now cj chivers yeah, CJ, who's yeah he goes by cj chivers CJ, but yeah. yeah people know he's chris and he brought back at war at the new york times he, he wrote brought a back at war fantastic book called uh, uh, uh the rifle is it or the gun yeah um and he's he been, talked about the ak-47 yeah yeah um what a lot here uh, uh there's a little bit of reveal a lot of people don't know this um, uh, I quit therapy for a while at, at a certain point. I was just very frustrated with therapy and, and, uh, I reached out to him and he, he actually got me back into therapy. A lot of people don't know that. Um, and that wasn't him being a journalist or him being a mentor is him really just wanting to care for a fellow veteran. And, uh, cause I, I told him I was struggling with a very, very specific memory, um, which, which I've talked about before. Um, and, and, and he actually reached out to a whole bunch of people on Facebook and got me back into therapy. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, he's been a, a true friend uh, and, and others, too. I mean, even like Dan LaMuth of The Washington Post. I was a nobody writer. And, you know, Dan LaMuth gave me my first byline at The Washington Post. And, and uh, Laura Diamond, um, who's uh, Jamie Diamond's daughter, actually, of J.P. Morgan. Uh, she was my first editor and taught me you know, what inverted pyramid was. And so, so most of my, what is inverted pyramid? <laughs> yeah. Well, you put the news at the top and you know, uh, but, uh, but uh, I mean, a lot of my journalism foundation comes from just being not afraid to talk to people and ask for help mm. and, and seeking guidance. And, and people have been very generous in terms of their time and, and advice to me. I, I've been more successful in my journalism career because of just reaching out and asking them, how, how are they, how did they do? How do they do it? Yeah. Versus, journalism school or I mean I got you know uh, I was a minor in journalism but I actually dropped out of college uh I'm shy like three credits in Spanish or something like that <laughs> but uh, so tell us to, for folks who don't know your work and I'll do a bit in the intro but tell us about your Marine Corps service how you ended up in the Marine Corps and then how you ended up from there in journalism absolutely uh for can I tell you a quick story I've been wanting to tell you this for of years course. I don't think yeah. I've ever told you this yeah, we, and, and what again people might not know this is the first time we we're meeting but we've known each other for years um uh, there was a running joke that we had about uh, um, 
I would come into work and, and I, I was an infantry squad leader at the time. And, and anytime the Marine Corps, the Marine Corps has this, uh, especially at the lower levels, some of the things that they have younger enlisted Marines do is very stupid for lack of a better term. <laughs> and, and I'd come into work and I'm like, Hey, what are we doing today? And his response was always, uh, Oh, you know, we're going to roll a donut, which is always, which is a reference to uh, the green zone, which is the whole scene about, you know, we, we were rolling into all these different places looking for WMDs and yeah, we keep rolling a donut. And that became like a running joke in our company. Uh, it was code for, Oh, we're going to do something stupid today. That doesn't make any sense. <laughs> oh, we keep rolling a donut. There's a disconnect, you know, just throw things out there. So all of that from, from your movie with Matt Damon became like code in our battalion um, for we were going to do something stupid today. I did not know so, that. Yeah, was, I didn't. Yeah. So for folks that don't know, a long time ago in a galaxy far away, <laughs> I got a call from a, a, a producer who actually used to be at 60 Minutes who then ended up working with Paul Greengrass, who then ended up working with Matt Damon and did a film um, based off Rajiv Chandrakaran's book, The Green Zone. Yep. Uh, it was actually called like a life in the Emerald city or something like that. Uh, yeah, right? right. And then it became green zone with Matt Damon, which was kind of like Jason Bourne more than it was the reality of Iraq. But me and, uh, they, they basically called us up and, and, and walked in and said, Hey, uh, we're doing a movie with Matt Damon. Uh, can you help us find veterans? And we were like, yeah, we could do that. And we did an open casting in New York. And they literally had a conference room and veterans just walked in and told their story. And they took, I think about a dozen of them. Wow. And a dozen of the guy, Jerry LaSala, um, Ed Gluck, um, uh, Paul, a bunch of other guys, or probably over a dozen of them are actually in the film as, you know, supporting characters. Huh. And they have a, an amazing story to tell where they went to, I think, Morocco for a couple of months. Then they went to England for a couple of months. When we actually shot that scene, it was in um, a racetrack, a dog racetrack in England, but they repurposed it to look like Baghdad International Airport. I had one line and they originally had me um, in the script as General Gonzalez. Huh. And I was like, I'm way too young to be a general. And I, you know, maybe I could be named Gonzalez, unlikely. So they downgraded me to Major Gonzalez based off my guidance. And, uh, you know, that was my big moment with Matt Damon. But here's the cool part. They did actually care about the authenticity and they cared about having us involved. And in some ways, vets are awesome. The makeup people used to tell us all the time how great we were because we didn't complain. We didn't complain about makeup. We didn't complain about not eating. We didn't complain about the heat. And they were used to dealing with actors who were kind of divas. But I want to come back to what's a related yeah. story, which is your work on This Is Us right. on NBC with my friend Milo Ventimiglia. But... Just to, to go all the way back, uh, James, you get the Baghdadi story. Yep. W w now it's, it's kind of unfolded. What do you think is the most important part of the Baghdadi story? Where is ISIS now? Uh, I mean, uh, there have been some analysis out there um, uh, about how, even though Baghdadi's death is absolutely symbolic and, and sends a message, um, there is some speculation how much of command and control he still had over ISIS as a group. And, and ISIS is, I mean, there's affiliates all over the world. I mean, there's now, I, I mean, you have ISIS in Afghanistan, which has historically never been a problem in Afghanistan. So r right now it's, where is ISIS right now? And, and what is their command and control structure look like in terms of their hierarchy with Baghdadi being gone? Is it more symbolic or, uh, or, or, or is it, you know, does it actually uh, filter down into 
how they are decentralized mm-hmm. throughout the world. And that's so that's sort of what I'm wondering out. It's a very hard question to, to answer. Um, but I mean, uh, to me, it always goes back to ideology. And, and that's always been one of the, the issues with the global war on terrorism is it's a war on ideology and not so much war on, uh, on a country. And ideology is very difficult to root out, mm. which keeps people in perpetual war. Yeah. So the, re- the reference earlier to how more is, is maybe more apt than, than I thought at the time, because there's a scene in We Were Soldiers Once and Young where they're getting off the helicopter and they're training. And he says, boom, you're dead. You're in charge. What do you do? You hesitated. Boom, you're in dead. You're in charge. Right. And there was this idea that everyone had to be ready to lead. Right. And I think those of us who've been in the military know that you knock off Baghdadi, there are more people waiting. Correct. Right. There is a, a farm team. And, and, you know, as much as Trump wants to celebrate, you know, this, this victory, which is a victory, right? right? You know, whether or not it's a strategic change of the landscape, we'll see, right? I mean, if you knocked out one of our generals, there are plenty of other generals that are ready to take their place. The question is, was he more than that, right? Is he, is he a symbolic leader, a spiritual leader, a strategic leader that is irreplaceable? And it's definitely not the end of ISIS, right? I mean, your reporting has, has shown that this is not going away because we took out Baghdadi, despite what the president might say. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, uh, it is true that, uh, I mean, uh, President Trump is being a little disingenuous in terms of taking all the credit for the, uh, uh, you know, decimation of ISIS. I mean, that started under President Obama and then it went into President Trump. So actually both presidents deserve credit for that. Um, but yeah, absolutely. It, it is it, To me, it's no different than when uh, we took out bin Laden in 2011. I mean, Al Qaeda is still around, uh, especially still in Afghanistan. Uh, and there's actually debate over how, uh, I mean, the government's viewpoint on Al-Qaeda, and you can trace this all the way back to like 2007, which I have, and, and Secretary of State Mike Pompeo has jumped on this train, which is, you know, Al-Qaeda is a skeleton of its former self. That's usually the terminology they use. Um, but I I think I, I'm very... I, I'm very worried about that statement because it it makes it it, it gives the impression that we should not that they've been defeated and they're not still dangerous. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, the, and that we shouldn't still worry about them because they're a skeleton of their former mm-hmm. self. But we've been saying that since 2007, and and uh, Secretary of State Mike Pompeo said it this year, uh, especially in Afghanistan. He was referring he was talking about Afghanistan and, and the withdrawal. But there are indications that both the, uh, Al-Qaeda, um, Al-Qaeda and the Taliban still work together mm. in Afghanistan, even after, yeah, I mean, 18 years after 9-11. So they might still be a skeleton, but they're still capable. Right. And the, the Baghdadi mission itself, James, when you were reporting that and sitting on the information, and then very quickly thereafter, Trump tweets the night before on Saturday night, he says, I have big news. Yes. When he tweeted on Saturday night, I have big news. Did you know what he was tweeting about? Yes. And you had the information at that point. You were still holding it. Correct. So what time did you, he, he tweeted that eight, nine o'clock something, at night. Yeah. It was like nine something. And then I think we finally reported like 1030, 1045, somewhere around there. And uh, you were, and, and the reason was, is I wanted further confirmation that, uh, the U- U.S. forces were out of airspace. Uh, I had been told that they were off the air, uh, that they were out of the airspace when the president tweeted. But I, it wasn't. I wasn't comfortable with one source. I wanted further confirmation just to make sure. So once your story runs, he does a press conference at nine o'clock or so the, the following next morning, morning right? Yeah. 
Did he disclose anything in the press conference in terms of details that you did not in your story because you were worried it would endanger our troops? I mean, nothing off the top of my head that I can think of. I'd have to go back and watch it. Because uh, you really have to analyze like down to the word of right. what they're saying. Right. Uh, I know, um, like, like everyone's talking about the dog right now. Um, uh, there's a reason why, like, I uh, first of all the uh, the capabilities of the dog I would never publish. Um, uh, because those are and my sources actually would never tell me because I've asked. Uh, but you, uh, anytime I know I'm getting close to very sensitive things. I always ask, like, is this, can this be published? Is this okay? You know? Um, but actually my sources wouldn't give up the dog's name. Hmm. Uh, it was only after the president tweeted that they gave up the name. It was because at that point they said, there's no reason to hold on to the name. So if the president had never tweeted the dog's picture, I would have never gotten the, the name of the dog. Uh, and then every, uh, and then once I got the name, I was like, is this going to expose the team at all? And they were like, well, no. Like that's ridiculous. Um, the uh, and and then every Pentagon p- official that I've talked to after that, I mean they'll they'll argue operational security, but the 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 idea that you're going to figure out who the dog handler is or, or individuals by the name of the dog is absolutely uh, ridiculous from everybody that I've talked to. <laughs> so let's 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 break this let's break you know. this apart for folks that maybe didn't get into all these details. So the Baghdadi story is released. On Sunday morning, Trump puts this out there and got a lot of criticism, I think rightly so, for talking about Baghdadi whimpering and crying, which no one could substantiate. He also was very specific in saying our helicopters came in low and they, w- they didn't go through the front door. They went in the side. Yep. And, you know, Delta I- I- is not even a unit that the government officially recognizes. Correct. Right. Everybody reports on it. It's commonly known. But if you ask the government, does Delta Force, the, the elite unit within the, arm, the Army Green Berets, exist, they have not publicly admitted that they exist, right? Right. So this is a unit that we have not publicly existed, and he's divulging pretty you know, close to details that, that most folks kind of made, made us cringe. Um, so I want to get to the dog story in a second, James, but are people at the Pentagon worried he's going to spill the beans? Like you have a lot of sources, people who work in the Pentagon who are on active duty. Do they trust the president with confidential, with, 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 uh, with top secret information? No. I mean, everyone I've talked to, no. no for the most part, no. Um, um, but I think their fears come out of the same fears that, that uh, w- w- um, under President Obama when they allowed access for, uh, which made Joe Dark 30. It was the same sort of fears. Uh, both... Um, Delta Force and and um, uh, SEAL Team Six, uh, you know, Naval Special Warfare Development Group, like they would prefer not to be in the news. Um, as much as we joke about Navy SEALs writing books and movies and stuff like that, uh, when they're active, like they 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 don't want the limelight. And so even uh, um, what's interesting is uh, originally when we reported, uh, we reported uh, members of the Joint Special Operations Command even though I knew it was Delta Force. And only after I confirmed with a couple of sources, like, is it okay to say it was Delta Force, that they said okay, that I then changed it to members of Joint Special Operations Command to Delta Force. Mm. Um, so I was even very careful about not 
when when my story broke, the original story says only members of Joint Special Operations Command because that's usually what the gov- government does. But uh, yeah, they're absolutely worried that the president might. But I think they're worried for the same reasons that they were worried with the, the Obama White House allowing too much access to um, right. uh, Catherine Bigelow and, and Mark Bowl. Right. Um, it's the same thing. They, it's the they, same they thing, want to be it, seen. They want to stay out of the news. Same thing, but it's not right. Like it's a, it's, no, it's it's a higher not. risk now, right? Like, well, yeah. And, and I think that well, I, I was critical. Tweet, yeah, sorry. I, I was critical of the Obama administration. I think they put out too much detail constantly, right? And and some of it maybe was enthusiasm. Some of it was that they were. Uh, less experienced in government, right? And less experienced around national security. And and I think many details um, that, that could potentially damage us tended to, to flow out of the Obama White House. But Trump is a lot more sloppy, right? Like Trump might tweet it. Yeah. So it, it's a whole nother level now than it was under the Obama administration. Yeah, I'm, I'm trying to remember the story. There was one particular story where it was something the president tweeted. I'm trying to remember what it was. It might've been, it might've dealt with, it might've dealt with Erdogan, uh, President Erdogan of of Turkey, but it was uh, I remember as soon as he tweeted something, uh, some of my sources was like I can't believe he tweeted it. Mm-hmm. He's like, um, oh oh oh, you know what it was? I'm sorry, it wasn't Erdogan. It was when um, uh, he called off the Afghan deal. So we're about to pull out of Afghanistan, and right. and 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 they that week they had a soldier killed, and President Trump tweeted out something that um basically called off the deal and and it and it killed my sources uh just killed them because they were like they're like uh they're like well i mean that that throws away the game almost and right. their viewpoint that's what it was right. is, is is his tweets have become foreign policy and not only foreign policy we've even seen it to where the white house and the defense department have not been on the same page so when he announced the transgender ban in the defense department the defense department had no clue that that was coming uh, Secretary Mattis at the time completely caught off guard. So was the rest of the Defense Department, and they had to quickly scramble to get onto the same page of the White House. Most public affairs officers that I talked to, uh, there was a period, and it, and it literally just ended when Defense Secretary Esper came in. But there was a period where I mean, we didn't have a Pentagon press briefing for over a year. The reason was the real reason was that is is they were living in the shadow of the White House and they feared that any messaging that they put out, they would be immediately undercut by the messaging coming out of the White House. And because they couldn't get on the same page with the White House in terms of the what the White House wanted the Defense Department to do, they just stopped holding press I'm, briefings. I'm glad you brought this up because I've been eager to dig deeper with you on this. We talked a little bit about on the radio. I've talked to Barbara Starr and others about this, but for over 300 days, you, you maybe you know the exact number, over 300 days, the White, uh, the, the Pentagon did not do a public press briefing. Right. It was over a year. Over a year. Over a year. And and that is, in my view, a um, an erosion of of the confidence that the American people have in our Pentagon to tell us what's happening. Right. You don't have to tell us that you know Johnny from North Carolina just got off the plane in Afghanistan, but we need to generally know what's happening. I mean, they weren't on a very basic level where they they were not only sharing uh, information from combat zones, they weren't even standing up and telling us the names of casualties. No, no. I, I mean, you can go back to Vietnam and Vietnam it was the five o'clock follies and every day they would have a press briefing in Saigon and tell you what exactly what the military was doing that day in the Gulf War. It was called the four o'clock follies. They tell you the same thing, what they were doing that day in the Gulf War. And I, I wrote an article about Afghanistan as related to sort of the, the void in Pentagon press briefings. I called them the zero o'clock follies because you couldn't even get basic information about what is going on in Afghanistan, what's going on in Iraq. 
you know, um, just basic details, not operational that would divulge operational security concerns or they just weren't talking. Right. Uh, and, and today where it really happens today. And I only, uh, I mean, we just had a, the military reporters and editors association where we complained to the Pentagon press chiefs. What really happens today is the Southern border. The Southern border is one of the secretive, one of the most secretive Pentagon missions right now. And I have no idea why. Hmm. It. Uh, I had a I had a public affairs officer call me after the last story I put out because I I'd, I'd obtained sort of the legal language that they were using for the border, and I had a public affairs officer call me and and they told me that's operational security. You're divulging where Marines are. I'm like, I said, yeah, they're in Texas, and they're in Arizona, and they're in California. I can if I can drive to where the troops are. I don't think that's a secret, and I'm not sure why this is such a big secret and why they're, why uh, U.S. Northern Command, who oversees the border mission, they don't allow embeds. They don't, like, they don't allow reporters to go down there. James, is it, is it because so many in the Pentagon feel it's political? I mean, it's at a time where Trump has taken $3.6 billion away from the Pentagon budget, away from military schools, away from hazardous material disposal units, away from firehouses on military bases, and, and taken $3.6 billion and, ex- and instead spent that money on extending the wall by, I don't know, a couple hundred miles, right? Out of thousands, potentially. Right. So this is very controversial, right? I think most people that I believe it's political, I believe it's politicizing the military on another level. Is that part of why the military is so reluctant to share this because they've never been in a situation like this before right. where, where, where in some ways the Pentagon has become a political piggy bank for Trump's political whims. Right. So most of the, I mean, most of the sources that I've talked to before, anytime they, they really considered it political in terms of people I talked to at the Pentagon was uh, when he announced that there was an invasion, uh, uh, you know, a caravan invasion uh, just before the midterms. They felt that he was only doing that for political reasons. And I know this because is that what the rhetoric coming out of the White House was not matching up with uh, the intelligence assessments. Uh, now, these intelligence assessments were unclassified, and, and, I, and I published them. And, and I think uh, Rachel Maddow did a big piece about it. Um, uh, but basically, the, you know, uh, the military is more concerned about unregulated militias operating on the border than they were the caravan of migrants coming towards the border. Uh, and, and uh, you know, it was characterized meaning, out of the White House. Meaning civilians with guns Civilian. running around, these, these kind of, these, these wannabe, whatever they are, that might accidentally shoot a Marine who's standing there doing his duty on a post. Correct. They were more concerned about them than they were about this, you know, caravan, this menace thing that Trump had created. Correct. Yeah. Uh, despite what the uh, the White House was saying at the time, uh, there, was, there was no intelligence to support the idea that terrorists were coming across the border. There was no intelligence to support the idea that there was an invasion or that there was trans criminals, uh, trans criminal organizations within the caravan. But if, yeah, if you look at the intelligence reports, which you can read, I mean, we published, we published them back in October is that it, it was all uh, militias that they were mostly concerned about. So I, w- I want to pause for a second, James, and, and, you know, you are um, working every day to protect these sources. You and many others are demanding public information from the Pentagon, from the White House, and the president calls you the enemy of the people. Did you are a Marine Corps veteran? You are, uh, you know, someone who really I think upholds a high standard of integrity in in the profession you've chosen. How do you feel 
when President Trump calls you the enemy of the people? Um, it, it doesn't feel good. Uh, I mean, to be honest, uh, there's a, if, if you ever get an email from me, there's a quote that I have at the bottom. Um, I don't know who said it, but, uh, it says, uh, quality journalism is just as important to, um, the survival of democracy as the army's guarding its borders. And, and I really do feel like that. Um, uh, like I said, I've always felt that journalism is an extension of my military career. Um, and both are enshrined in the same document. Military members uh, swear to, uh, you know, uh, to support and defend the Constitution of the United States. And journalists is the only job that is protected in that Constitution uh, because of the rights uh, a free press will not be infringed. And the reason why it won't be infringed is so the American people can know what is going on in their name. Uh, it, it seems as if too often, you, you know, uh, that the U.S. government forgets that their power is derived from the people. And that every government document created is the people's. It's not the government's. The, the, the people own those documents. So anytime I submit, I submit tons of FOIAs, Freedom of Information Acts. And, and I always get told that, oh, you're going on a digging expedition. Like, why are, you, why are you after these documents? It's because they're not yours. They're the people's. And the people have the right to see what those documents are and what you're saying in their name. Everything is done in the people's name because that's where the power comes from. So when I'm told that I'm the enemy of the people, I, I, I almost don't even want to acknowledge it because it's, it's completely, I don't even know how to respond to it because it's like, it's like that it's so far from the truth. You know, like, I mean, uh, uh, I, I, again, I'm at a loss for words. I don't even know. Like, it, it's like someone telling me like that you don't care about your country. Right. It's like, well, that's ridiculous. Right. So it's like, I just can't put much like, you know, uh, faith into it. So in this environment, James, what, what is, what, what's, what's more dangerous being a Marine like you were deployed overseas or being a journalist now here at home? Uh, um, I, I mean, I'm still going to, say the Marines overseas. I mean, they're still taking the risk. Um, but do you feel, you know, you're an investigative reporter, you're breaking stories about the white house. Yeah. You know, this, this atmosphere the president has created where people are threatening journalists are yep. sometimes attacking journalists. What's that like for you having been on both sides of it? It's, it's incredibly disheartening. I mean, I get death threats all the time. I, I've gotten death threats from white supremacists who are, uh, who were supportive of the president and, and, uh, you know, and, and I, I, to me, I, I've, uh, I'm a middle of the road person. I, I, I don't really mind someone who was supportive of president Trump or president Obama. You know, I, I, I really, um, I've always, um, I always try to be very fair to the president, but, I, but, but in terms of like, I, I never like when people just call him Trump. I do like when people he's president Trump, but with that said, his rhetoric is not, it's doing a disservice uh, to democracy and to, you know, what happens when he leaves the white house. That's what I'm most concerned about. Mm -hmm. When he leaves the white house, we're still polarized as a nation and, and presidents, I feel, and, and people can, you know, debate on how much or how little they've done this, but presidents should be, once they come into office, unite the country. Um, 
And I don't know how united we're going to be when President Trump moves on from the office. We're mm -hmm. still going to be left with our own devices. We're still going to be at each other's throats. That's what concerns me. Mm -hmm. um, to me, you know, I've never understood, uh, you know, uh, people are very concerned about party, either Republican or Democrat. And, and I was well, if it's a good idea, it's a good idea. What does it matter where it comes from? If it's a Republican idea or if a Democratic idea, as long as it's benefiting the people, again, benefiting the people, the people who put you in power. I've never understood why party matters. I think a lot but, of people who follow this show will agree with you. We have a huge part of our audience that's unaffiliated and independent or just fed up. But to, to that point, a question I ask of all our guests, James. James Laporta, what makes you angry? The Baghdadi story is here on the totem pole. It's at the very lowest in terms of I, what I find important. Uh, and I was, uh, I was actually thinking about, um, you know, like what do I consider important stories? Uh, it was probably the story I did the yesterday or the day prior. We, we lost two sailors of suicide last week. That didn't get near enough attention as it should have. We have a huge suicide problem in the military. We have a huge sexual assault problem in the military. There's 112 sexual assaults every day in the military, statistically. That adds up to a battalion real quick. That, to me, will always be the most important story, despite Baghdad. And, and, and I don't mean to diminish what those soldiers did to take out Big Daddy. And, and, and I understand the, the international importance of that story. But, but to me, it's, uh, I always start at people. And it is just, it's a gut punch every single time I, I get this news about another sailor being lost to suicide. Um, and it's not like the military is not trying to do something, but it's, it, it doesn't seem like there's a clear answer. Um, and I just wish that story would have gotten the same amount of attention as the Baghdadi story. Mm. To me, you, that's what's always been more important. And I think you deserve a lot of credit. You've been tenacious also. There's so many different issues you've covered. You covered the border. You've covered operations overseas. You've covered what's happening in Afghanistan when it was Forgotistan, when many people weren't paying attention to it. And you've covered the suicide story, you know, in the veterans and military community consistently. Um, you, you've been, I think, the first to break a number of stories about suicides on VA facilities, or at least you've added insight to that story and, yeah. and, and, and some of the data that's come out from inside that I think is, is underreported. Um, but when you, um, when you take a bigger step back, James, and, and look at this atmosphere, um, <laughs> the story that got the most attention this week is the dog, right? Right. And, and, and you know, and the seriousness of it is, it's kind of a funny story, but it's also kind of a serious story. But there's an old saying, I think, that if you put a, a dog in the title, your book will end up in the New York Times bestseller list like a hundred times more. Like right. if you look on the New York Times bestseller list, there's almost always a story about a dog, a book about a dog, right? Dog. We used to have a, a line at IVA, uh, babies, puppies, and vets. Everybody loves babies, puppies, and vets. No one wants to speak ill of babies, puppies, or vets. And if you did so politically, it's suicide, right? You don't want to be the candidate who comes up and says, I don't give a shit about puppies or I don't give a shit about babies. You wrote the story right after you break the Baghdadi story. Right. Within 24 hours, yep. you break the story about the dog that was on the mission. I have been around a wide spectrum of working dogs in different special operations units and even in the veterans community. I have been overwhelmingly impressed by them, right? And that's not to be dismissed. No. But 
tell us about the dog story. Tell us what you got and tell us what you were able to get first. And for people who maybe didn't hear the news, what's the story about the dog? Uh, dog was on the mission into Syria. Um, uh, again, uh, I don't want to give away what the dog does specifically. Uh, cause, cause that's, because uh, that's very important. That, that goes speaking to capabilities of our special operation forces. The dog's like a weapon system, essentially. Correct. They yeah. are a weapon yeah. system. They're more of a weapon system than they are a dog uh, in that regard. Um, they, I, I, I've worked with dogs as well um, uh, in Afghanistan uh, uh, to finding IEDs and stuff like that. They're incredibly brave. Um, and, and all they want to do is please. Uh, but yeah, this dog uh, went in. Uh, he was wounded. Um, and uh he or she is it a she so we confirmed I, I was the gender? yes so i uh initially we were told a she and then uh for the confirmation was that it was a male oh. and that's what the washington post is reporting as well oh. so um so right now it's a male there's there's i'm hearing rumors that there's supposed to be a depending on press briefing later today where there's they're going to release like the dog's name and the photographs and you know and pictures and stuff like that and videos from the raid i don't know how much they're going to release uh, and I don't even know if they're going to have the, it's a rumor that's right now that they might have a press briefing, but, but the dog, yeah, uh, it got wounded. And, um, but like I said before it, you know, um, I couldn't get the dog's name and in journalism, you're, you're, you, you know, we use sort of the same thing. Uh, you know, uh, a story is not that a dog bites a man. Uh, a story is a man bites a dog. That's a news story. Or you always get the dog's name. If a dog's if a dog is involved in a news story, so I mean that's just what journalists have always been taught. Everybody wants to know, right? People want to know. And, and when I started asking, they're like, "Well, the name is classified," and I'm like, "What?" You know, I was like, "Are you being serious?" I, I couldn't tell if they were being serious with me or not. They're like, "Yeah, it's classified," but once the president tweeted out the photo, they were like, "There's no reason to hold the name," and, and I don't know if they're using the. I don't know if they were using classified genuinely, like actual classification in terms of secret and top secret, or if they were using classified in terms of like it's, it's operational security. Uh, so James, what is the name of the dog? It's Conan. And, and my follow-up question was the barbarian or the comedian. And I was told the comedian. I was told that by several people. And then that's when uh, the Conan O'Brien show reached out. And they were like, is that true? I was like, yeah, yeah. It's, uh, and so uh, I've been talking with the Conan O'Brien show about like Defense Department reporting, you know, because they, apparently they were like joking about it in like the writer's room. It's been a weird week for you, James. Yeah, it's been, it's a, been weird a weird week. week. Well, because, well, Conan O'Brien, I mean, he, he's done uh, a lot of things for the troops and he's yes. gone overseas. And so, but they were, they were joking about like, the, the, you know, because the president tweeted out the picture, does he have to go into witness protection now? And, and and my pitch to Conan O'Brien was, you guys should do like the ending of like Goodfellas, where like Henry Hill has to go into witness protection. He comes out like in his bathrobe and has to. Get I'm sure spaghetti. Trump wants to meet the dog. I mean, Trump wants a photo with the dog. Obama had met some of the dogs in the past. I don't know if there are ever photos, but they had to muzzle the dog. I mean, these dogs are intense. They're incredibly well trained, and I don't think anybody wants to risk the dog accidentally biting the president, no matter how unpopular he is. But I'm sure we will find out more about the dog. Conan over the next couple of weeks, but in a very sincere and, and, and serious way, these dogs are incredible. Anybody who's seen them in action understand if you imagine a situation where Baghdadi is hypothetically, you know, running down this cave and, and the dog can go first, the dog can go faster, the dog can go lower, the dog can go maybe more ferociously than a human and get there quickly and save American lives. So many of these dogs have served and died 
in the war on, you know, I'm always reluctant to call it the war on terror, but our post 9-11 wars and a lot of the rescue efforts afterward at Ground Zero, they're bombs, they're they're everywhere. And the the work that the dogs have done is really incredible. And I think they deserve to be celebrated. And I'm glad that your work did that on some level. Absolutely. I mean, they've saved, uh, I know of countless Marines that they've saved from, from improvised explosive devices. Yeah. Some of them have taken, you know, have lost their lives and by them losing their life when the IED went off, it saved tons of Marines. So, I mean, they are really unsung heroes. So James, let's talk about this is us. Um, it is one of the biggest shows in America and it's a primetime show on NBC. It's got Mandy Moore and my friend Milo Ventimiglia, who's done a lot of USO work. His dad, I believe is a Vietnam veteran and the great Tim O'Brien is, is associated with the show who wrote The Things They Carried, which I think everybody should read, whether you're a veteran or not. It's just an incredible, maybe the defining piece of work about Vietnam for many people. But uh, what are you doing on the show and, and why do you think it's important? Yeah. Uh, so, um, yeah, Tim O'Brien, like I said, Tim O'Brien, uh, uh, the great, the reason, I mean, there's a couple of reasons why they brought in Tim O'Brien. For He wrote the Vietnam storyline for, for season three. Uh, one is uh, verisimilitude. Uh, the book blends, uh, verisimilitude is, is the blending of fiction and nonfiction, which is exactly what uh, The Things They Carry does. Uh, the book that he wrote, that it was nominated for the Pulitzer um, but if you read the things they carry, you don't know what is true and what is, and, and what is false or, or, or just uh, fiction. Um, and that's exactly what This Is Us is, does. Their storytelling is very similar. If you've ever watched This Is Us, it uses the same thing. We blend fiction and nonfiction. Uh, we follow things on an actual historical timeline. So in season three of This Is Us, I mean, that's very accurate in terms of uh, we, there's a scene where uh, you know, someone gets drafted into the military out of Vietnam. Uh, that's, and that's because the draft rules actually changed in December of 1969. So even down the, the historical research that the show does is all very accurate. But uh, in terms of how I got involved with the show, uh, I was a fan from the beginning. Um, uh, a lot of people don't know, uh, uh, my, uh, my father died uh, two hours after my son was born uh, on the same day. And, uh, but I had to be, I had to quickly be a father. And so I didn't have time to, I, I couldn't process my, my father's death. A year later, This Is Us comes on and I, okay, by this point you should have watched This Is Us. I'm going to spoil it, but, uh, it deals with the death of a father. Uh, um, Milo plays Jack Pearson and it's, uh, he dies and, and it's the family sort of how, to, how do they move on from that? You know, this pinnacle person in his life, uh, in, in the family's life. So the show, in a lot of ways, was helping me deal with grieving with my father. But then, in the end of season two, uh, you find out that Jack's a veteran. And this one scene really, I, as of me not being a journalist, but me as, as James Laporte, the veteran, I really needed to hear this at this particular moment in my life. Jack takes... Uh, his son Randall to Washington D.C., and they go to the Vietnam Memorial Wall, and it's the first time you ever learn in the series that Jack is a is a Vietnam veteran, and and Randall is very at this moment in his life he's got a lot of anxiety over going to college, and and Jack starts talking about coming home from war and coming home from Vietnam, and he says this thing it's like um, you're you're going to when I came home I I couldn't find my balance. And I couldn't find my balance and I was unemployed and 
it just seemed like the world was against me. But then you find your balance. You're going to find it, and you're going to lose it, and then you're going to find it again. Mm. And it was just, I needed to hear that. Just me as a veteran. Like, I could almost get, like, choked up talking about it. Yeah, yeah. Like, it was very, it was, um, it was a personal moment that it was just phenomenal. And, and I actually, um, it wasn't just me. I was, ta- I was talking to other veterans who were getting the same thing because you don't, there's, I mean, not, I, I, there's, not, there's not many shows that are talking about the Vietnam War, especially nowadays. So, uh, so it was right after that scene and, and they go into season three of Vietnam that I reached out to the show and I'm thinking, God, they're getting a lot of stuff right in terms of the, the depiction of what it's like to come home from war. It's not, it's not the stereotypical... Hollywood tends to have stereotypes of veterans. They're either incredibly heroic or they're incredibly broken and there's, to the point where there's no return. But they just achieve this balance where they're an onion. There's layers to these characters. And so I thought there was a deeper story there and I reached out to the show and uh, I don't cover Hollywood. So even like trying to figure out how to reach out to the show was a, was actually more difficult than I actually thought. And I was like, yeah, so I don't know how good my investigative skills are because that was actually (laughs) very difficult. But, but um, I was about to interview Tim O'Brien and I was about to interview Dan Fogelman who created the show. And about an, an hour before the interview, I found out one of my Marines uh, took their own life. And so I get on the phone and we're talking about war. We're talking about coming home from war. And I completely lost it over the phone. I completely broke down. Uh, it was, it's one of the most embarrassing, unprofessional moments of my journalism career. And uh, I, I was bawling my eyes out and I was apologizing profusely because I felt it was very unprofessional. It's not my job to start bawling over the phone. Uh, but Dan Fogelman reached out to me and said, dude, you're being way too hard on yourself. You're, you're human. Like, don't worry about it. And we stayed, you know, we stayed in touch. And um, he brought me out to, uh, I had to go out to L.A. to cover a story. He brought me by the studio. He wanted me to meet the, the staff. It was only supposed to be like a 15-minute meeting with the staff. It turned into two hours. And after that two-hour meeting, we were like, we're going to create a, a character. And mm. that's sort of where we're at now. Wow. And then I made the character into a, a female veteran. Wow. Uh, for very, very specific reasons, too. So, uh, so what is that reason? Why did you make the character a female veteran? So the first meeting that we had, uh, so they were going to create a character uh, that was sort of based on my story. I, I, I was At that point, I'd been in therapy for 10 years, and at that point, I was able to be an open book and talk. Um, but the reason I wanted to, to be a female veteran, and actually other people were in in agreement in the room was um, it was two weeks after Shannon Kent died. Uh, Shannon Kent was a, a senior chief petty officer in the Navy. She, she was on these like high level classified intelligence missions. Uh, she died in January of this year. Um, uh, she was, it was a, a, a guy walked in and uh, blew himself up, killed her, her interpreter, a green beret and, and a former Navy SEAL who was working for the defense intelligence agency. But what was astounding to me was that what came after, that when we started to report that story, the American people were like, well, women serve in these high-level, classified sort of jobs. And for people who report on the military, it's like, well, yeah. Like, it was not news to us, but it was news to the rest of America. And it shouldn't have been. Um, And so that, I was like, well, okay, then there's there's an issue. 
that that female veterans are underrepresented in film and 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 that's a problem. So the character is not based on Shannon Kent, but inspired because mm. uh, she does the same job yeah. as as what Shannon Kent does, and 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 she's inspired by two female uh, Marine uh, Marines that I served with who were doing the same job. So. You should not be embarrassed. It's not unprofessional. Oh, it's yeah. part of what makes you so powerful, man, is that you are open about um, your emotion and your vulnerability. And I really think it's why people trust you, right? Whether it's a, a show in Hollywood or a confidential source inside the Pentagon, people know that you're a real person. And, and I think that that is, frankly, sometimes missing in journalism. I'll tell you, at least on my behalf, it right. is. It, it really does inspire me how open you've been about yourself and about your feelings and about your own personal story. And it's also an inspiration. That's part of why I wanted you on this show, James, because you are really, I think, inspiring others who've been through a lot, who've gone through a lot, and are now communicating not just your story, but everybody's story. I mean, at, at your best, you're a storyteller, right? And whether it's telling Shannon Kent's story or Conan the Dog's story, <laughs> right. you're doing a, a, a great job of it. But as you think about that, I want to ask you too, because a lot of folks who are listening... Um, you know, th this is a great conversation because it, it sits in many places at this podcast. It's the intersection of politics uh, and journalism and entertainment and national security. And you, you sit in all those worlds and this conversation has spanned all those worlds. But at, 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 at its core, you're an inspiring guy. You know, you've overcome a lot that. and you're a leader. So um, folks are listening, I think will draw a lot of inspiration from your story and from your tenacity and from your your uh, your experience of his last couple of weeks, which is almost, you know, maybe the def defining couple of weeks of your young career. You know, you may win yeah. a Pulitzer one day, you may win an Oscar one day. And this is a time where, you know, James Laporta became, you know, known to the world. But at, at its core, James, what makes you happy? Uh, I mean, that's a great question. Uh, and I appreciate that. Um, I mean, uh, I, I'm here because of the sacrifices of others. I, I, just to, uh, I'll answer your question in a minute, but I wanted to get that out there that okay. I'm here because people are no longer here. Um, so uh, I stand on their shoulders. Um, so, but uh, what makes me happy is uh, I have, uh, I, I love watching Judge Judy. <laughs> <laughs> I love watching her like just rip into people. I, I find it to be absolutely hilarious. I don't know why. Uh, I, I love just like, just people come to the, like, I just, uh, and even, um, I know the whole thing is like a setup and like, I, I, it was, I actually ruined it for me a little, like to find out like the backstory of like how they get the cases there and all that kind of stuff. But I, I, I just find her to be like that guilty sort of like pleasure of like just watching her tear into people like every week testament to your character that might like, be the most authentic answer we've ever yeah, had to that question on this show well, I, I used to that's I, the most no shit answer we've had i love that <laughs> i love judge judy too like, i mean i really do i, I grew up watching judge judy uh, and we've used judge judy as a reference point in the last couple of weeks in the show we talked about uh the reality show that is the the trump impeachment and it's almost like nancy pelosi is it's judge judy right now over yeah, this reality I, yeah, TV they're very show. similar i had a buddy of mine who um uh, I'm, I'm so glad I never got this tattoo, but there's part of me that still wants it just to, because it'd be hilarious. It was, he wanted to get judge Judy's face tattooed on his like thigh and behind her would be the American flag. And underneath it would say only Judy could judge me. 
And I just uh, always thought that that would be the greatest tattoo. Or the worst tattoo. Or yeah, the worst, we, you know, but hey, who If we get Scott Campbell back on the show, like, folks haven't listened to our episode with Scott Campbell, the tattoo guru. I wonder if Scott's ever gotten that tattoo. We can find out when he joins us again. But we have to ask you the, the last uh, foundational question of this show. James Laporta, when you were growing up, oh. uh, were you, did you grow up in, in Florida? Yep. So when you were growing up in Florida, James Laporta, what was your first car? Uh, my first car was my grandmother's car. It was a 79 yellow Cadillac DeVille. It was a boat. It would have wow. yellow, yellow leather seats and an eight track. And I had, I had Elvis Presley. I think I had, um, uh, I think I had Hank Williams, uh, and like the windows didn't roll down. And so it was incredibly miserable car to drive to school. Um, and, 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 uh, like I grew up, like I grew up pretty poor. Uh, so, um, you know, my dad was a, like a truck driver. My mom worked at McDonald's. So it, we, we never really had much money. And so my grandmother was like, you know, she was like, Oh, you can drive this car. And then, uh, so that was the car I was driving around. It was awesome. It was a boat though to drive. And then, you know, I moved from that to like, a, um, like a Mitsubishi Galant or something. What year was the car? Do you remember? I think it was like a 79, 70, That's a very big car. Oh, it's a very huge. big car. Well, yeah. Cause it, I, if I remember correctly, it had like the fins on the back, like oh, the, I'm sure it did. almost like the, like the ghostbuster fins, like on the back of that, uh, on the, on the Hearst. So yeah, it was, it was, but it was just, it stood out cause of it's yellow, but it almost like, it was like that, like, it wasn't like a yellow, yellow. It was almost like a, like where like the yellow is like faded. Like oh, it yeah. just like been a, through like a, a lot. Gross yellow. Yeah, like a gross yeah. yellow, and yeah. and then with the yellow seats, and then just eight tracks. I had eight tracks and like the radio. I love um, it. You know, you might have to do a, and the windows didn't go down. <laughs> so. You might have to do a car show at the car club here in New York of all the the cars from from Angry America. We've had such an amazing span of cars, <laughs> but that's up there, James. That, that's really yeah. up there. so. Since you mentioned Ghostbusters, uh, my son watched Ghostbusters for the first time this week which I'm still not sure I should have shown him because some of it's a little scarier than I thought. But uh, Halloween is, is coming up. Yep. Do you have a Halloween costume, James? No, uh, but I actually just recently showed my son Ghostbusters too. But yeah. I've started with like the real Ghostbusters, like the cartoon version of Ghostbusters. Oh, yes. They came out like yes. the same year that I think the sec- the first or second one came out. You know what your son's going as for Halloween yet? Uh, he's He's got this... He's gotten so many costumes this year as gifts that he wants to have like a, like, you know, the first half of Halloween, he'll be Darth Vader. Mm. But for like the second half of Halloween, he'll be like Spider-Man. Mm. And they're like, like he wants like costume changes. Like he's like, like some like diva actress or something like that. <laughs> so like, he'll be in like three or four different like costumes. I love it. Amazon Halloween. spoiled the kids a little bit. Cause you can kind of get a costume in 24 hours right. and you get multiple costumes. The days of us going to, you know, Caldors or Sears and picking one costume <laughs> right. are yeah. long, are long gone. Right. Yeah. Well, he's also in the best neighborhood. Cause like, Again, I live among 90-year-olds in, in like almost like a retirement community. So like there's no children. He's a rock star. So he gets all the candy. He's like uh. the like last year he was the only trick-or-treater and we got all the candy. It was wow. awesome. There's no competition. Wow. I, 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 I there will be a prize, I'm sure, for the first person who listens to it. Someone's gonna dress up like Conan the dog. 
Oh yeah, that's be, going to yeah. be a very popular costume or a very interesting costume. But um, your son will get lots of candy. I hope he gets lots of gifts. And as is tradition in the show, I want to end our interview with the giving of the gifts. Oh whoa! So I didn't know you this. are yes. This is uh, oh man. You were an investigative reporter, but you n- did not investigate enough that this is part of the show. <laughs> so uh, first, you have some American-made swag from wow. uh, Oscar Thank Mike, you. the veterans at Oscar Mike. So if you can't figure out anything else to be for Halloween, you can be an angry American. There we go. Right. And then next, this is uh, the last real question of the show. We ask every guest. It's, it's, this is a carryover from Easter. Uh, we have not adjusted for Halloween. There are three colors of peeps before you, James Laporta. Yellow, blue, and pink. Which one do you choose and why? Yellow, because they're the originals. It's always been yellow. Yellow's always been the original. I'm an old school guy. Like I like old school things. I like the originals. It's yellow. That is a very powerful and definitive answer. Yeah. And it is the same answer that Sarah Jessica Parker gave. She said that, that yellow is the OG of peeps. Yeah, <laughs> that's very good. Right? Yeah. Right? Well, it's true. Like I didn't even know they came in other colors. Those other ones are frauds. You can you can FOIA where they come from. All right. Now, <laughs> lastly, uh, we give each guest an American-made whiskey. Whoa. So this is uh, Colonel Taylor Small Batch. And uh, you are, what was your highest rank in the Marine Corps? I was a sergeant. Well, we're promoting you to colonel. <laughs> Thank I you. I mean, now you're basically a flag grade officer. You're doing flag grade work. <laughs> and I hope wow. that you enjoy that. It's beyond the pay grade of, of a corporal in the Marine Corps, but you can yep. enjoy that after you're done trick-or-treating, after you go through this whirlwind. Um, James, in, in all seriousness, so I want to thank you for joining us. You are an inspiring guy. You're doing a tremendous public service. You represent the best of what journalism is all about, the best of what the Marine Corps is all about, the best of what this country is all about. You're a success story, man. To go from where you came from to now be in Hollywood and holding the White House accountable and also treating such important stories with such care and respect and integrity. Uh, I'm grateful for your reporting and I'm grateful for your character and I'm really excited to watch where you go from here, man. Thank you. I, I sincerely appreciate it. It means a lot. And I wish you a happy Halloween. You're gonna, are you going to drive to Florida now? Is that what's going to happen? Yeah, that's pretty much what I'm doing. So I'm going to I'm going to leave from here to go drive to Florida. <laughs> so you're you're going to have broken the Baghdadi story, right? You're going to have broken the Conan the Dog story. Yeah. You, you know, you're you're advising a Hollywood thing. You're going to get in your car and drive all the way from New York to Florida, straight in, down I-95, yeah. in time for Halloween. In time for, yeah. That might be your biggest challenge so far. Yeah, I'm going to make it. I mean, you know, I mean, I, I'll get there. I know I you're going to I mean, gonna I'm going to be high on coffee and Red Bull and like, <laughs> uh, do they have rippets? Can you buy rippets like on the road? Like, I'm sure you will find I mean, out. I'll be buzzed, but I'll be there. And folks should follow you on Twitter yep. um, at James Laporta. Uh, yeah, I'm at Jim Laporta. At Jim Laporta yep. and read you on Newsweek. And I hope you have books coming soon. I hope you're working on some other things. We'll see. I am. Uh, there's a couple things. In the works. I'm not going to ask you to disclose any confidential information okay. about said projects, but I hope that when you do continue to put stuff out, you'll let us know. Uh, we are inspired and grateful for you. Angry Americans with uh, James Laporta, the great James Laporta. Follow him, watch him, be inspired by him uh, live from here in the New York Classic Car Club. Thanks for joining us, man. Thank, thank you. you, everybody. So like this show, Oscar Mike is all treat, no tricks, man. Made in the USA by veterans. It's hard to make stuff in the USA, but Oscar Mike does it. It's also hard to make a super comfortable and cool t-shirt, and they do it. If you haven't worn an Oscar Mike t-shirt, check it out. I'm sure they'll give you your money back if you don't like it. 
but it's super comfortable and my favorite t-shirt. All the Angry Americans gear is made by Oscar Mike and it kicks ass. So it's the perfect thing to stick in your Halloween basket. It's the perfect thing to rock on your days off around Thanksgiving. Also makes a great Christmas gift. So if you want to get ahead of the game and start getting stuff for Christmas now, go check out OscarMike.org. All right, you've heard me talk about it before. Oscar Mike is a veteran-owned, American-made, kick-ass lifestyle apparel brand, and they exist to support the Oscar Mike Foundation, which supports veterans. They keep veterans on the move in every aspect of their life and inspire everybody to do the same. You want to be something awesome for Halloween? Are you strapped? You don't have an idea? Be an awesome American. Go to OscarMike.org, and you can check out all their awesome gear. Uh, Veterans Day is coming up. Maybe you want to get a cool shirt for yourself or for someone you love or for a veteran in your life, or you just need some new workout gear. They've got their Boulder Hero Sports Tank. They've got their Yoga Capris. They got their George Washington tee, which I've told you about, which is badass, and the Abe tee, which is a tatted up Abe Lincoln on their super lightweight, ultra soft tee. All their stuff is made in America outside of Chicago, so you can rock it for your Halloween next year. You can rock it for your Thanksgiving. You can rock it for your Christmas. You can rock it all day long. But OscarMike.org is a kick-ass American company making kick-ass gear. Check them out. They got a lot of affordable stuff, and you get free shipping for any order over 60 bucks. Tell them Angry Americans sent you. Check out OscarMike.org. time to turn that anger sadness frustration inspiration agony into positive impact it's time to be a helper always look for the helpers there will always be helpers you know even just on the sidelines because if you look for the helpers you'll know that there's hope every show i give you a way to convert your righteous understandable anger into positive action you know the deal it's an action that shows that angry americans can also be impactful americans an action that channels your energy, makes you feel good, and makes a difference. And like our show, the actions are always packed with the four eyes: integrity, information, impact, and inspiration. When I was a kid, I had a lot of costumes. But like many kids, more than once, I was a soldier for Halloween. And this year, many kids are going to be soldiers. Many will be Green Berets. And for good reason. Delta Force Green Berets are the best of the best. They're the tip of the spear. But our Green Berets are not just killers. They're also teachers. And they can teach others to be empowered, to prevent the need for bloodshed. And in northern Syria, it was our Green Berets that taught the Kurds how to fight so the Americans wouldn't have to. But even Green Berets need help. And their dogs do, too. Their actions in combat are heroic. And like the men with whom they serve, soft canines are the quiet professionals. They are a living, breathing tool, a weapon. They can work alone and can switch from assault to detection, all at their handler's command. That's where you can come in. The Special Forces Charitable Trust financially supports programs that promote the well-being, healthy living, and strong family bonds of our U.S. Army Special Forces and their families to improve the quality of their lives while enhancing their mission readiness. And that includes their dogs. So go to specialforcescharitabletrust.org. That's specialforcescharitabletrust.org. They're dedicated to the sole proposition of taking care of our Special Forces soldiers and their families. They raise money to financially and professionally enhance the command's family resiliency initiatives. They support and sustain 
all programs that enrich the well-being, healthy living, and strong family bonds of the Green Beret force that's committed to keeping America safe. In the military family, they say we all serve. The Special Forces Charitable Trust is dedicated to supporting those incredibly strong families, both during the hard times and the good ones. Special Forces families know they can rely on this organization. So when an SF soldier is deployed, he can focus on his mission while knowing that the SFCT will take care of his or her family back here at home. You can donate through the combined federal campaign if you're a civilian federal employee, active duty military, postal service employee, federal retiree that includes military retirees, or a federal contractor. Go to specialforcescharitabletrust.org. You can set them up in your CFC. They're CFC number 60000. If you're a federal employee, you know what that means. Not a federal employee, not a problem. Just go to the website and learn more. Donate if you can. Or just post it on your Facebook or your Twitter or whatever. Email it to a few folks or print out more information and leave it at your Halloween party. Do whatever you can. No one made a greater mistake than he or she who did nothing because he or she could only do little. Don't have a costume this Halloween? Be a helper. That's a damn good costume. And if you've got a story to tell or a resource to share, find us on social media and use the hashtag AngryAmericans and let me know. Don't just be angry. Be active. Big thanks to a few spooky folks that helped make this awesome Hollywood episode happen. James Laporta, the guy is amazing and he's just getting started. He's a guy to watch and I hope you'll root for him. Follow him on Twitter at, at Jim Laporta. And this is interesting. After our interview, he took time to Skype with a high school class just to teach them about journalism. He's doing that kind of stuff all the time. But then, no shit, he got his car towed. Right after he left the car club, he called me to tell me that he got his car towed. And here's the irony. When you get your car towed in New York City, it ends up at the NYPD impound, which is right next door to the car club. So James had to come right back next door to where we did the interview to pick up his car. But now he's in Florida. If you want to reach out and throw him a few bucks to pay for his tow fees, go for it. But thank him on our behalf for sharing his story and doing such great work. And you can go to angryamericans.us to see the full video of my interview with James and my interview last week with Tulsi Gabbard, with Samantha B, with Peter Berg, with Ron Perlman, with all our, our interviews over the last 31 episodes. Big thanks to Mighty Mercy Rich, creative Chris Rosenthal, Roy Velchek, who did the video, our whole rock star team at Righteous Media. They power this show and everything around it. And big shout out to Mercy, whose birthday is on Halloween. Happy birthday, Mercy. She's making all the stuff happen behind the scenes. Uh, including our advertisers. If you want to advertise on this show or at future Angry Americans events um, or any other Righteous Media production, shoot us a note. We'd love to have you on board. Big thanks to Bill Schultz for producing this episode yet again and for all his audio magic. You should be dressed up as a wizard for Halloween, my friend, because you are truly a wizard. Oscar Mike, our awesome merch partners. Check out all their new designs at angryamericans.us now. Seriously, do it. Do it. Do it. And it's time for Thank a Listener. Every week, I thank a few angry Americans for listening. And before we do that, a reminder, there is a new way for you to sound off, a new way to be a part of this show and this movement. We have a new Angry Americans phone line, so you can do it. Yes, you can do it. Tell us what's got you angry. Sound off and... I'll make you famous. Yep, I'll make you famous. 833-33-ANGRY. That's 833-33-ANGRY. Call... Leave us a voicemail, tell us what got you angry, and we'll use it in a future show. 
In the meantime, some more folks to thank. Mark West in Illinois. Mark West tweets at MG West Badge 2. He is a retired police lieutenant, spent 35 years as a cop. He is a lab dad, a new grandpa, very independent, left of center voter, a Trump hater, and a patriot. That's according to his Twitter bio. I had tweeted about Giuliani questioning Lieutenant Colonel Vindman's patriotism, and Mark tweeted back, they reach new lows every day, trying to trash an American hero, one walking around with shrapnel in his body from a wound he sustained while defending his country. By the way, you should get your own show on POTUS, Love When You Substitute for Cuomo. Thank you, man. Uh, I don't know if that's going to happen, but uh, I hope to be back on the radio with Cuomo soon, and thank you for listening, Mark. I appreciate it. Also, big thanks to Bergeson MT who is in Bozeman, Montana, uh, tweets it at Bergson MT. He is an entrepreneur, firstborn, native Missoulin, ambitious self-starter, wannabe Norwegian, UM Grizz alumni from class of 03, and he hashtags uh, Go Grizz, which is the Montana team. Uh, he said, you should create an Angry Americans playlist. I could use it on long runs. I love that idea, Bergson, and so does uh, someone named Beth, Bethany J. Vila, she is an occupational therapist, mom of three kids and two cats. She tweeted, I second this. But I like that idea, guys. The playlist for Angry Americans, I will work on it. And I thank you for listening. Stay tuned. Also, big thanks to Mark Zeno. He's in Atlanta, Georgia. He is a radio and TV host. He's an Army Lieutenant Colonel, two-time Iraq War vet. He's the host of a great podcast called Hazard Ground. Uh, he's also on Atlanta Sports X Daily. Uh, and the voice of the AAF legends, the Georgia Swarm LAX, and the Atlanta Blaze. The guy is all over sports, and he's a native New Yorker, but he's an awesome guy. And Mark had tweeted that he was listening to Angry Americans podcast with Tulsi Gabbard. He said, she's such a good interview. Tulsi personifies leadership. She is honest and forthright. If you're a Dem voter, you need to hear this. If you're a Republican like me, you'll respect her position and her patriotism worthy of your time. Thanks, Mark. I really appreciate you having me on your podcast a few months back and for that tweet. Uh, also want to shout out to Mike Tipton, who we've shouted out before, but he said he appreciated the interview with Tulsi Gabbard, said it helped him grow. Can't call myself a lover, but no longer a hater. Definitely a respecter. He said, thank you both for helping me understand better and be closer to the person I want to be. Look, the, the feedback on the Tulsi Gabbard pod has been all over the place. It is by far our biggest show and definitely our most controversial. I said Tulsi was the most controversial candidate in the 2020 race not named Trump, and boy, is that true. Uh, lover or hater, I hope you found that conversation useful and worthwhile. And if not, reruns of Sean Duffy in the sixth season of Real World from 1997 or somewhere, so you can go watch that. It was the one in Boston. Or maybe Road Rules All-Stars in 1998. Duffy was on that too before he was on CNN calling uh, Army officers traitors. So you can go check that out if you're not into my podcast. But maybe they could bring back Road Rules and just fill it with former Trump staffers, cabinet members, and other supporters like Mike Flynn, Paul Manafort, Anthony Scarmucci, Sarah Huckabee, Sean Spicer, that crazy Sebastian Gorka guy. Maybe just make it a season of Survivor, especially if you could get them all to leave America and go on a secluded island. That would be entertaining, or at least good for America, right? Anyways, keep it coming. Keep your feedback coming. 
Uh, thank you for all that feedback, especially on the Tulsi Gabbard interview. It's making us better, and I encourage you to check out the full interview on YouTube as well and share with your friends far and wide and use the hashtag AngryAmericans and sound off. Seriously, do it. Do it. Do it. I'm grateful to all of you. Uh, and as always, thanks to my family, my amazing wife, and two boys. Okay, here it is, the big reveal. The Rykoff 2019 Halloween Family Costumes. You ready? Ferdinand. Ferdinand the movie. That's our theme. My son loves Ferdinand. We love Ferdinand. I love Ferdinand. If you haven't watched the movie, go check it out. It's got John Cena in it, and it's hilarious. It's actually also got Peyton Manning in it, which will surprise you. But Ferdinand. So Ryder is, of course, going as Ferdinand. I am going as Ferdinand's dad who is named Raf. Many people don't know that. He's a very small part, but an important part. I will be Ferdinand's dad. My wife will be Lupe, the calming goat, which is amazing and hilarious. If you haven't seen the movie, go check it out. My wife is amazing for being Lupe, uh, the calming goat, which makes me wonder if we could get Trump a calming goat. And the baby, Baby River, was going to be El Primero, who is the matador. But my other son smartly said, that he didn't like that because El Primero fights with Ferdinand at the end. He didn't want his baby brother fighting with him. So the baby will be Paco, the dog, and Ferdinand's brother. My kid is smart. It should be fun. There will be pictures. You can find them on Instagram or anywhere else you follow me or Angry Americans and share your costumes with me. Use the hashtag Angry Americans and I will share them far and wide because I am grateful to you, dear listener, for tuning in. Please continue to tell your friends to check this podcast out. It's growing tremendously. We were up like 65% last week. Uh, and if you're on an Apple device, please give the show a quick review and keep the feedback coming on social media. I see you, I hear you, and I am with you. Next week, I'll be back with a fresh new show and a new guest. Subscribe now if you haven't already, so this will be hot and fresh and waiting for you every Thursday morning at 0 dark 30. That's 0, 3 a.m. Eastern Time just in time for your Thursday commute to work. If it's late, my bad, but hang in there. We will do our best to get it up early Thursday. And if you want to chop it up into two pieces, I know this is long. Maybe you take the first half on your way to work, take the second half on your way back, but I hope you appreciate all the work we put into it. And until then, stay tuned, subscribe for free, and share. We will keep this movement growing week by week. Things are crazy out there, and sometimes they're scary, but we'll get through it. In the meantime... Enjoy the time of year when everyone can be a kid and everyone can have some candy. And remember, it's okay to be angry and know you're not alone. We're all a little angry. That's because we're paying attention. And together, we can turn that vigilant anger into positive impact. I'm your host, Ferdinand's dad, Paul Rykoff. Thanks for listening. Stay vigilant, America, and happy Halloween! <laughs> it caught on in a flash. He did the mash. He did the monster mash. From my laboratory in the castle east.